Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerinke, and I'm here today in the studio with Ice and Review writer Yelena Chirich. Today, we are going to be taking a look at Yelena's most recent piece for the magazine, Boomtown, a South Iceland community aiming to make the most of tourism and immigration. The drive into Vik i Mirtal from the west is one of my favorite stretches of the Ring Road. Just past the turnoffs for Derhole and Reynisfjara, the flat plains of the south coast narrow and rise into a brief but beautiful mountain pass, both windy and windy. Before you know it, the town opens up below. To the left, its iconic red-roofed church on a hill, watching over a slope of low-lying houses. To the right, a cliff leading out to the sea. Ahead, a plain on which the growing town stretches east. If you're looking for a community in Iceland that's been profoundly changed by tourism, there's hardly a better place to look than Vík, the urban center of the Mirdalsreppur municipality. Over the past eight years or so, building after building has sprung up in the town. A two-story iceware store opened in 2017, a 72-room hotel in 2018. Since 2015, the municipality's population has nearly doubled, from 480 to 877. Ten years ago, there may have been one or two places in town for a traveler to sit down for dinner. Now, there are enough restaurants for a trip advisor to compile the top ten. As elsewhere across Iceland, the booming tourism industry in and around Vík needs workers. And most of those who have come to the town in recent years are immigrants. While across Iceland, some 18% of the population are foreign citizens, in Mirdalsreppur, that figure is 60%, making it the only Icelandic municipality in which immigrants constitute a majority. It's a reality in which both the opportunities and the challenges brought by immigration and multiculturalism in Iceland are magnified. I'm here to learn more about both. The Mayor's Office In Einar Freyr Elinarsson's office, a big screen hangs on the wall, featuring a photograph of goats frolicking in a field. It's taken on my farm, he explains. I'm the sixth generation of my family to live there. I'm a country boy, as deeply rooted in Mirdalsreppur as I could be. For years, the family farm has also had a guest house and a restaurant. And before becoming mayor last year, Einar was involved in the family business. As he says, I have a background in tourism, and like everyone who works in tourism here, I'm used to working with foreigners. Since I was 10, there have almost always been some foreign people living with us at home, so I sort of grew up in that environment. Since Einar's childhood, however, the tourism industry in Mirdalsreppur has changed dramatically, expanding from a seasonal industry to a year-round one. Back in 2010, people were hiring staff for two or three months over the summer, he says, but there was nothing to do over the winter. Around 2017, that started changing very quickly. There started to be a lot of traffic over the winter, which meant tourism companies could hire staff year-round. I also think that's why we're leading in tourism in this area. We have such quality staff. When the pandemic brought tourism to a near-complete halt, it really sunk in for Einar that many of the foreigners who'd come to Mirdalsreppur for work were not just here temporarily. I was on the local council at the time, he tells me. When companies closed and had to lay off their staff, we thought the municipality's tax income would collapse. 
What we hadn't realized is that there were a lot of people who had lived here long enough that they had earned the right to unemployment benefits. The municipality got local tax income through those benefits, and its income didn't drop quite so much. That's when I realized, okay, people are starting to settle here. They're not leaving. I head to the icewear wool shop to meet one such settler who came to the town years ago and never left. Icewear. The icewear store in Vik is more than a store. It's an institution. A sea of coats, socks, knitted hats and sweaters, stuffed toys and souvenirs fill its vast two-story floor plan. Even on this weekday morning in early November, tourists are wandering the aisles, picking up a puffin emblazoned scarf for a hiking shoe for a closer inspection. Summers are crazier, but the winters are catching up. Tomasz Czochowicz, the store's energetic manager and the chairman of the town's English language council, tells me. Tomasz moved to Iceland in December of 2015. I came straight to Vik, he tells me. It was different than it is now. A year or two earlier, the hotels were closing down over the winter. I was unemployed for a month. I had debts. It was tough. Then I met a woman who lived here, and she helped me find a room. I stayed with a guy who was working at Icewear. He told me to leave my CV here. I got a position because I already had housing. It was such a hard thing to get. Then I lost it one week later. Thomas eventually settled in, and shortly afterwards his girlfriend, now wife, joined him in Vik. Eight years later, he has climbed the icewear ladder to become the store's manager. He has a house and a three-year-old son. There are challenges, he says. But if you compare it to life in other places, it's just crazy good. Thomas admits, however, that for residents arriving now, it's more difficult to enter the real estate market. We have many young people working here, between 20 to 35 years old, he says. Very often, they stay for three, four years. It's a challenge for us to try to keep them here, to give them a carrot, so to say. Vekerskalli one person looking for such a carrot is Irene, a cashier I meet when I pop into Vikurskauli gas station. Irene came to Vik two years ago, relocating from an Athens she describes as overpopulated. I ask her how the town is treating her. I love it here, but it's not for everyone, she answers. While settling in wasn't hard for Irene, she says, it's after that it gets harder. Then it's in Odin's hands, or Thor's, she quips. When I ask Irene about the challenges of living in this small South Iceland community, she lists off many issues that small communities across Iceland share. The health clinic, which also serves as the community's pharmacy, is only open from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. on weekdays. There's a lack of housing, and most new buildings, according to Irene, are built for the tourists, not for the people who live here. They're trying to build more housing, but it's too slow, she says. Many of the issues she recognizes are not necessarily reflections on the municipality, but the government. The big heads seem to forget there's a strong community of people here behind the touristic town that really try to stay long term, she tells me. But we don't have a hospital, post office or a school big enough to accommodate a town of nearly a thousand people. Irene wants to stay in Vik, but she doesn't know how long she can under the current conditions. There are not a lot of career opportunities for people who would like to work on their career path, she says. The English Language Council 
Over the past few years, as Mirta Sepper's transformation was taking place, the issues facing foreign residents were not immediately apparent to the local council. That changed in the lead-up to the 2022 municipal elections. When we were preparing the candidate lists for the election, Thomas came to the meeting, Einar tells me. He took the stage and explained that a very large group of people within the community felt that they didn't have a real opportunity to make an impact. So we had a very honest discussion about that, and the idea of forming an English-language council emerged. There was one specific development in 2022 that helped Vik's foreign residents be heard. An amendment to Iceland's election legislation meant that foreign residents could now vote in municipal elections after having lived in Iceland for three years. Previously, it had been five. In Mirtalsreppur, this meant that suddenly, 42% of all eligible voters were immigrants. The number of foreign residents on the electoral register quadrupled, Einar reflects. It was a whole different game. Suddenly, this group could make demands of the municipality for services that were important to them. Building a new gym became a campaign issue, something that no one was thinking about eight years ago. The biggest demographic among foreign residents is 20 to 40 years old. This is a service that is really important to them. Once he became mayor, Einar quickly saw that to gain residents' trust, he needed to make sure his involvement in the council was hands-on. I decided that I would attend all the English language council's meetings, he tells me. I go to every single one, and I give them a report on what's happening in the municipal council. And it's been really good for me, as well, to get their perspective on things. The issues we discuss in the municipal council affect all residents, including foreign residents. Doctors Drones and Dialogue As Thomas reviews the issues the council has discussed over its inaugural year, I can see they range widely. Bringing more doctors to Vik, regulating drone flying within the town, preparing welcome brochures for new residents, and making Icelandic language education more accessible. Local residents often work long hours and finding the time and motivation for Icelandic classes can be a challenge especially when their jobs mostly involve serving foreign tourists in English. If you want to have true access to Icelandic society, learning Icelandic is key, Thomas says. I had the idea that the municipality could hire a teacher who could be available at different times to accommodate shift workers. The problem is how to frame it, since no one has done it before. But it's also exciting, because why not? Let's see where it takes us. In its role as an advisory body, the council has made proposals that are followed up on by the municipal council. Although the English language council technically does not have any executive power, Thomas argues that soft power can be even more effective. If we ask something of the municipal council, we cannot be ignored, he says. We definitely have influence. I think this soft power is better when you're trying to convince people of something. You create connections. If you push too hard, you create more divisions in the community. Housing. When I ask Einar about the biggest issue facing Vik, his answer is clear. Housing. Whatever housing goes on sale, he says, employers buy up immediately because they want to grow their companies. And in order to grow their companies, they need to hire people. So they buy housing so they can rent it to their staff. In contrast to the capital area, most workers who have settled in Vik live in housing provided by their employer, Einar explains. And the municipality is no exception there. We've had to buy a lot of apartments in the last few years just to be able to hire people for the office and the schools. And we're in the same position as the companies. 
We can't continue to house someone if they stop working for the municipality. It's a vicious cycle, and it's not ideal for any of the parties involved, Einat explains. It's a bad situation for the worker who's completely dependent on their employer for housing. They're stuck working for the same person. And the companies would also rather invest their money back into the business or pay out dividends. By building more rental housing, Einar hopes Mirdosrepur can change this system. New rental apartments have come on the market recently, and the municipality just signed a contract to build 200 more units over the next 10 years. More secure housing, independent of employment contracts, will also help reduce resident turnover, Einar suggests, which could in turn help diversify the economy. A lot of the new residents in this area are highly educated, he says. They could easily do something totally different from working in tourism if they weren't at risk of losing their housing. Another important factor, Einar says, is ensuring good services. Foreign residents are lacking a big part of their support network here, he tells me. If they have kids, they need to know there will be space for them in the preschool, because grandma and grandpa aren't around to watch the kids if something comes up. The preschool. When I enter the preschool, it's nap time. I tiptoe through the hallways in search of its director, Nicole Lee Mosty, hopeful that she, at least, is still awake. Nicole has been living in Iceland for over 20 years. Much of that time has been spent working in the fields of diversity and inclusion in both Reykjavik and the Westfjords, and directing organizations such as the Multicultural Information Center and Women in Iceland, or the Women of Multicultural Ethnicity Network. Nicole took on the position of Vik's preschool director last June. The immigrant community here differs from the others she's gotten to know. In Reykjavik, there's a lot of diversity among immigrants, she says. There are university-educated people who are working in their field. There are people like me, two-decaders, who have settled in, and not necessarily around a particular industry. There are people who receive refugee status who settle there because that's where the services are. In Isafjordur, in the West Fjords, there are immigrants who've been there for a long, long time. Here, it's a whole different reality. There are a lot of people who are newbies, fresh to the country. While the length of time most immigrants stay in Vik may have lengthened since 2015, Nicole still sees a lot of turnover. And maybe that's okay, she observes. Maybe we need to also think about short-term inclusion. Not necessarily just integration, but inclusion. How do we include people who come for a little while? Because there's a lot of wealth in having young people here with new ideas, she observes. The fact that most of Vik's new residents work in the tourism industry presents specific challenges when it comes to integration. I have families here who work very hard in the summer and then take their vacation in the winter, she tells me. So I'll lose children out of the preschool for six, seven weeks. That might be great for the family, but it's a huge gap in language development. The preschool recently elected a new parents' council, where two out of the three members are of foreign origin. I'm really happy they came to me and asked if they could be involved, Nicole tells me. I want it to be a learning opportunity for them about how things work in the local community, but also for us to learn what they're thinking, like, for example, why they still go to the doctor in Poland. As for the English language council, Nicole sees it as a good first step towards greater integration and inclusion in Mirtasrepur. People are proud of the fact that it's here, she says. People are proud to be a part of it. And that's a really important first step. 
But as for the next steps, how do we get the community more involved in the council? And how do we bring what happens in the council back out to the community? Nicole stresses the importance of the council being involved in shaping policy within the municipality, particularly a policy on integration, which is still lacking. When I asked Nicole what motivates her to continue to fight for inclusion, her optimism is apparent. After the women's strike the other day, the Prime Minister said that if anyone could have perfect equality, it's Iceland. So why don't we? There are so many possibilities to get it right. Nicole points out that the changes in Vík benefit longtime locals just as much as Iceland's newcomers. The town is booming, she observes. Everywhere you walk, they're building something. The preschool is no exception. It'll soon be housed in a new building, the first phase of which is set to be completed by December. As Nicole observes, growth is happening. The question is, what do you do to include these new people in the community that they're basically funding and keeping alive? The running track. As I step out of the preschool, I wander to the running track at the edge of town. Two women are strolling around it, one pushing a baby carriage. During the pandemic, this municipality had one of the highest birth rates in Iceland. I think about how Einar framed his hopes for the future of Mirdalsreppur. He said, I want the municipality to invest because it's in a good position to invest right now. Many of the new residents are paying full taxes, but they're young people without families, which means they're using very few services. As people settle here and have children, they go to school, the operations become more costly. The opportunity to build for the future is now. I wonder what other municipalities in Iceland can learn from the developments in Vík, both its challenges and the enthusiasm and vision of its community leaders. I hope they won't wait until immigrants become the lion's share of voters to ask these questions. If they do, they'll lose valuable time. As I return home to Reykjavik, Nicole's last words to me echo in my head. People should watch what happens in Vík, she said. I know I will. Well, thank you for sharing the really, really interesting article today, Yelena. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, I just thought it was really interesting, uh, you know, as we were kind of talking about this and the article was coming together, just getting this whole other view of Vík, which, you know, outside the capital region is probably one of the most visited uh, places in Iceland. Uh, most uh, travelers and visitors uh, who have been to the south coast of Iceland have certainly passed through Vík at some point. And, you know, of course, it's very close to Reynisfjara and just a lot of these really uh, immediately recognizable places on the south coast and so you know it, it it's definitely a place that people have an image of it kind of stays in people's minds and yet I think it's really important to show this other side to what society and community looks like in Vik because it might not be exactly what some people might expect for instance absolutely I think um, for anyone who's been to Vik the tourism industry within the town is is very apparent these days. I mean, there's shops, there's restaurants, there's a huge iceware store that we visit in the article. Uh, but it might be kind of harder to see where the locals live, what the locals are doing. And of course, the locals are heavily involved in the tourism side of things. But, you know, when the shops close at the end of the day or, or whatever, the tours are over, um, they've got their own life and their own community as well. And it was really interesting for me as well to get to know that a little bit. Uh, because I pass through Vík very often, but 
most of the time I'm just stopping at the gas station like everybody else, you know, getting a hot dog maybe or you know, filling up the car or whatever and um, then just continuing on my way. So for me, it has up until this point kind of been a, been a drive-through sort of stop. Uh, so yeah, it's really, really special and uh, wonderful to get to know the community a bit. And I'm really grateful to, to everyone who spoke to me. Well, and a, a little bit tangential to that, um, but maybe you could just quickly talk about you know, where your general inspiration for this piece came from. I mean, like, why did it kind of strike you to write about Vic right now? Like, was there something in particular that you were aware of that you wanted to look more into? Yeah, well, we always try to cover what's happening in Icelandic society and the Icelandic community. And we know that our readers are interested in the immigrant community in particular and multiculturalism and how Iceland is adapting to the changes that come along with having so many more uh, foreign residents, but also in terms of how tourism impacts the local community. And I think that that's something that is always interesting because it's not straightforward. It, there are positive impacts and there are negative impacts. And I think with multiculturalism in the immigrant community, there are huge opportunities, but of course there are also challenges. So I think there's just so much to explore there. Um, and I had heard about the English Language Council, which was sort of the first of its kind in Iceland. And I just thought it would be really interesting to dig deeper into it and see whether, you know, now they've been running for a year, see whether what they've been doing has had any impact and how the community feels about the council. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll just say that, um, you know, from my perspective, it's also just really interesting because... You know, clearly, um, Icelandic society is changing. Uh, the tourism industry has obviously brought a lot of changes uh, in just very recent history, the last decade or so. And, you know, so it is just kind of interesting to just see the first years of history changing. You know, I mean, like like a lot of these demographic changes are really going to affect communities throughout Iceland. And it really kind of matters how communities choose to meet that head on or whether they choose to ignore it, if they choose to kind of let that be a source of growth and positivity, um, as you know, clearly a lot of people in Vik are interested in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I would say, you know, Einar, the mayor, he's he's very aware of that, and he was very much um, thinking to the future. And one of the things he said to me, which which didn't make it specifically into the article, was that, for example, now in the youngest division of the preschool, most of the children are from families of foreign origin. And mm. he's very aware that you know most of them don't speak Icelandic. They don't have the chance to speak it at home. Um, and he says, you know, if we don't address this, if we don't ensure that they have a good grounding in Icelandic and become fluent through their education, it could lead to certain social problems in 10 to 15 years um, because those children won't have the same access to education as their native Icelandic counterparts. And he always looks at these challenges in a very positive way. And he says, you know, we have an opportunity to prevent that right now, if we act now. Um, but I think it also goes beyond municipalities. Um, you know, th there have to be larger state policies and there has to be financial support from the state as well in order to ensure that we're preventing, you know, certain social issues 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah. So one dynamic in particular that you highlighted was housing. And this has been particularly problematic with a small community that's grown, 
relatively quickly in recent years. And, you know, not to, <clears throat> you know, like, like when you first kind of described this situation to me, I mean, it kind of struck me as almost like a turn of the century company town where, you know, you, uh, work in a factory or something and uh your boss is your landlord and you kind of rent directly from uh the company and so obviously that's not an exact image but it kind of captures something of you know i mean yeah almost a certain kind of frontier town feeling and so maybe you could just uh give me a little bit more detail about you know how does housing in this small community work? You were talking about uh, like a lot of these uh, agreements between employers and uh, workers are kind of informal. It maybe sometimes places some workers in a somewhat precarious position vis-a-vis -vis their work and housing since they're kind of bundled together. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting comparison to the you know company town of the United States, for example, uh, from roughly 100 years ago. And Iceland also has a bit of a history of, of this type of social organization in the coastal fishing towns. If we think about um, also earlier, you know, early in the 20th century, the sort of herring boom, uh, you had maybe a fish processing plant and a fishing company that owned ships and, and would go out and catch the herring and process the herring. And as a worker, you know, you maybe showed up for the season and you were housed in the facilities of the company. And... So you got paid and maybe, you know, in a, in a certain way, you're, you're housing, you were dependent on your employer for housing. And of course, if you stopped working, I mean, you'd have to leave that housing. So Iceland also has a bit of a history of this, although, of course, it's a little bit different, you know, in, in the present in Vik, where we do have, you know, the municipality and then we've got different business owners. So it's not as if everything in the town is controlled by a single entity. Um, but yes, I that was something that was also new information for me. I wasn't really aware that this was the majority of workers in this area really live in housing provided by their employer. And the thing about that structure is, of course, that then you're dependent on your employer, not only for your salary, but also for your housing. Um, and I, I should definitely note that Einar mentioned to me, I asked him for specific figures, but he said it's really difficult to find those figures of exactly what percentage of workers are living in this housing arrangement. Mm. Because usually the way that it's organized is that the cost of rent, let's say, is just deducted from a worker's salary. So instead of a worker yeah, okay. getting a salary and then paying a rent, uh, paying a certain amount of rent to their employer, whatever they would be paying a rent is just deducted from their salary. So and so therefore yeah. there's no actual like lease or rental contract. Yeah, there's no rental contract. Yeah. There's only an employment contract. Um, and I haven't seen one of these contracts, so I can't tell you exactly, you know, whether the employment contract includes something about housing. I would imagine so. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can all see, I think, how being dependent on your employer for housing means that, you know, if you lose your job, you also lose your housing. So that, and then that means that you probably have to leave Vik entirely because, you know, you, un unless you can get another job, which can also provide you with housing. So it kind of complicates things for people. And it also means that if you're somebody who's maybe working in tourism, but has career ambitions in a different area, or just wants to develop their career, their skills, try something new, it's very limiting to you. You have an additional barrier of, if you want to leave your job to try something else, you have to find some way to find housing. Mm. 
So, you know, it's obviously uh, reductive to just, you know, kind of ask the question, is tourism as an industry a kind of net negative or net positive for the entire society? I mean, obviously, there's always going to be some positives, some negatives. Um, but I think that one of the really important dynamics at play here is, you know, over the decades, rural Iceland has kind of seen a depopulation with more and more people moving to urban centers, specifically Reykjavik. And so, you know, a lot of the smaller municipalities throughout Iceland have had trouble keeping up a certain revenue base through, you know, real estate taxes, just having people living and working in the community. And so, you know, some of the smaller uh, communities in Iceland have, you know, really had to struggle to kind of keep up a certain level of services for their residents. And, you know, so clearly one of the the real boons here actually is that this new kind of explosion of the industry um, is actually allowing a relatively small community to, you know, provide a level of service that's maybe a cut above what it might be able to provide otherwise. And, you know, that's just a very kind of interesting dynamic. Um, do you, so, I mean, obviously one of the big focal points of this article is, um, you know, how foreign residents, workers are kind of adapting to live in Iceland. But I mean, did you also just have a general sense of, you know, how the average, you know, native Vik resident kind of feels about some of these services that are maybe now available that weren't uh, maybe even five, 10 years ago? Yeah, I think um, although the the only sort of long-term resident that I spoke with specifically for this article was Einar, who is the mayor and obviously is, you know, not just uh, the average Vik native on the streets, um, I get the feeling at least that, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction with, you know, the fact that uh, the municipal coffers are full and that means that certain investments can be made in local services. But I think the foreign residents and the local residents share a lot of concerns as well. And I think there's a lot of overlap. So although we might tend to think of kind of, well, foreign residents want one thing and, and local residents want another thing. And, and there there is, as the article mentions, maybe some age discrepancy between those two groups in general. Um, nevertheless, I think they do have a lot in common in terms of their needs and what's important to them. I mean, one thing that several people discussed with me was healthcare. The fact that you can only go to the health clinic between 9.30 and 1.30 on weekdays. I mean, that doesn't really work for most shift workers, for most workers, period. And and the fact that, you know, if you have a sick child on the weekend and it's the winter and maybe the roads are closed because you're snowed in, um, that's not a situation that is very easy to deal with. And, you know, the fact that the population has grown in such a short amount of time means that there's more need for, for stronger services and maybe those services are taking a long time to catch up. And so I think both local and foreign residents feel those needs and, and are in agreement about certain things that are wanted. Um, I, and I got a sense from you know Nicole and, and from others that local residents definitely are very happy that the town is booming because you know they see other towns in the countryside um, where you know the opposite development is happening and I think whether or not this development is based around one industry or an industry that they like or dislike it's still overall a, a positive positive development 
uh, I have to say that I did find it rather humorous and charming how uh, because of the generally young demographic in Vic, uh that uh, kind of having a new gym uh, kind of became a somewhat major uh, political talking point, for instance. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it just shows you also, I think it was also surprising for the local Icelandic politicians, you know, because this was something, as Einar said, that they hadn't considered as, as something that was so important that it would be kind of a primary campaign issue. But uh, the way Thomas described it to me, I mean, people work very hard. They work very long hours. Once their workplaces close, you know, they need to have something to do. They want to stay healthy, especially in the winter. Um, mm. One thing that I that I actually noticed uh, in Vikurskali, the, the gas station, there was a little tip jar in the restaurant there, the walk-on restaurant. And uh, it had a little sticker on it that said, tips for therapists in the wintertime or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I just thought it was really cute. And I, I mean, it just po- points toward the, the issues that you know, residents face. It's it's a long, dark winter. And even though tourism is booming in the town and there's a lot of development, there's maybe still less development at this stage happening for services that local people can use, you know, when they go home from their jobs. Yeah, definitely. And finally, I'm not going to ask you to... Uh, predict the future of the nation, um, but, you know, to briefly take Vik as a little microcosm of some broader social changes that are happening in Iceland, you know, just in general, having done the research and talked with these people and visited Vik and, you know, really kind of taken a close look, you know, how did you kind of leave Vik feeling? Like optimistic, pessimistic for the future? I felt um, very grateful, first of all, to all my interviewees for speaking with me, and I felt very privileged to have gotten some insight into what's happening in this community. I was really impressed by their optimism, and I think that made me feel optimistic, um, that Einar and Nicole and Thomas as well, uh, that they have all, they are all looking toward the future, and they're all coming to the table with ideas and with solutions and they want to prevent problems in the future. They want to make the most of what they see as a, a community that really harbors a lot of wealth, a lot of human resources. And that made me optimistic because they were optimistic. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing the piece today, Yelena. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English-language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.